My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Is it merely coincidence that cultures on all seven continents have recorded accounts of a great flood that once swept the earth? And if this is true, what could be said about the biblical accounts of fallen angels mating with the daughters of men, causing corruption and chaos and ultimately provoking God's wrath, who then delivered a flood as punishment? Fast forward some thousands of years and we find royal bloodlines who claim lineage with the fallen angels, and the clown is their venerated symbol of this ancient demonic Nephilim. Today's guest has set out to draw extensive and detailed connections between clowns, ancestor worship, pagan iconography, and the ancient Nephilim, the offspring of the fallen angel. The great Paul Stobbs of Understanding Conspiracy on YouTube joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks of Crazy podcast to discuss the ancient Nephilim and how their influence is still felt today in modern culture. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Paul Stobbs. I believe the clown was invented by taking many of these traits from these cultures all around the world that represented Nephilim and mashing them together into a Western clown. So the Western clown is an amalgamation of all these traits from other cultures all around the world. Freemasons were infamous, the traveling men. They go all over the earth and they go and find these cultures and these architecture. They collect all the stuff, all the artifacts they can find. They go look for these things because they want to keep their history and their cults solid. They want the knowledge. It's all about hidden knowledge, isn't it, at the end of the day? So they travel around the world and they, I think they find these cultures who worship the demons. They go, I like the way they're venerating the Nephilim. I'm going to take that and we're going to bring it to our rituals here in the West. And I think they took a lot of features from all these cultures around the world and they made a clown out of it.
Certainly. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and I have a very special guest today, someone who I'm excited to talk about. We're getting into a dark subject that goes back centuries, and it's important that you set aside all your preconceived notions for this episode, as it is with every episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, but particularly... With this episode, we are going to go into some deep waters that we haven't tread in this way yet. And with me to do that is an excellent author and YouTuber named Paul Stobbs. Paul, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what brings you here today, brother. It's a pleasure to have you. Brilliant. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, okay, I suppose my story spans over about a decade. I was a an art student at university during maybe 2011. I forget the time period, it's been so long, but I think it was roughly from about 2011 to 2014. Up until that point, I was a raised not pretty much non-religious. I wasn't somebody who was particularly, I wouldn't say awake in any particular level of the thing. I've always been an artist and a free thinker in that respect, but conspiracy topics and things like that were just weren't something I grew up thinking about. Neither was religion or anything like that. I was raised in a secular family and religion just wasn't really talked about. My my grand, my grandma was Catholic, but that was rarely brought up or had much to do with anything in my life. But during this time, I was basically going heavily into the atheistic worldview as a teenager, as you do as an edgy teen. And then Slowly, I got heavily into cannabis use, psychedelic use, the typical things that an artist would do in university. I got into that scene quite easily, taking MDMA every weekend, going to raves, the usual stuff while hitting it hard on any psychedelics I could get my hand on. And I was looking for something. I was searching for some kind of spirituality to fill this void I had in my life for a long time. And during university this time, this three-year period, I started to see that people were talking about the Mayan calendar at the end of the world in 2012 and all this type of stuff was happening. That got me looking into basically, basically I thought, what are people seeing exactly that's making them say the world is going to end? To me at the time, it was like, this is an outrageous claim. This is ridiculous. So I made it a part of my artwork, a part of my process at university. My project was to create this channel called Understanding Conspiracy. And from that, I basically went into this attitude that I'm going to pursue every single thing out there to do with the conspiracy culture as it was because it is a culture and go down every topic to its end result and i'm gonna do it as though i believe it i'm gonna fully humor everything to its final conclusions i'm not gonna question much i'm just gonna go with the flow and lead each rabbit hole down to its inevitable end because uh, that's just how i tackled things was, i'm a method actor of conspiracy theories <laughs> really went into it hard full um, immersion I always try to come out of it at the end of each topic and then review it and see how that particular conspiracy subject would fit into the big narrative that you can create from it. I never really was one to try and pigeonhole myself into a particular worldview. I originally came at it all from a new agey, like I said, psychedelic exploration perspective. I was looking into the whole sacred geometry aspect. I was believing the, the zeitgeist thing, which was around at that time about multiple gods all sharing the same pattern. So that means all gods are the same, including Jesus type of stuff. But obviously as time went on, I, I came at initially from psychological interpretation, a Jungian perspective, an archetypical perspective, how I tried to interpret all these things. 
But then as time went on, I realized I'm learning a thing or two here. <laughs> I'm realizing actually this stuff is probably all real. <laughs> it's actually all probably true. These people do believe in the devil. These people do worship Lucifer and they don't make a secret of it. And that's where I started to question in my life. If they believe is real, then that means the other thing is probably real too. So over a long, over a decade, really, I slowly basically became a Christian. Now I don't speak Christianese. I'm not a church going Christian. I don't sound like a Christian to most people because I wasn't raised that way. I don't know how to be (laughs) the stereotype of a Christian necessarily. It just wasn't where I came from. It just wasn't, it wasn't who I have no examples around me to, to go off by, but that's basically what happened. And I had quite a few experiences off the back of psychedelic experiences. I, I went through a lot of spiritual attack is the best way to describe it sleep paralysis attacks, entities coming to me in dreams, really strange stuff happening. At one point I was paralyzed out of nowhere and was being sucked into a black void. And I kept having these moments that would prove to me that Jesus is real and he has the power to stop whatever this dark spiritual thing is. Because all I would do is ask him for help and call out his name and these attacks would keep stopping. So I've had personal experience, which led me to believe that Jesus is the truth and he's my personal savior. And that's as far as I go with my Christianity. I'm not really part of a church. I suppose you could define me as a non-denominational contrarian in some way. Because through my research into all this conspiracy stuff, I started to go down this path of history, biblical history, the narrative of the flood and the creation myth, the angels, the fallen angels, the book of Enoch, the watchers, the Nephilim. I was really into all of this because I had never really been taught or shown any of this stuff before. And in my attempts at the beginning to try and find a church, I didn't find anywhere that would talk about this type of stuff. It just didn't seem to be in the forefront of a mainstream churchianity type of thing, especially in England. And that's maybe okay for them, but it wasn't enough for me. I needed to find my people and to find out more about this. So I was diving heavily into all of that, coming out the back of this whole psychedelic exploration. I I learned from that, that the spiritual realm is real. So it was easy for me to easily convert to this. So is God then. And what happened with this Jesus character seems to be pretty important because the entities on this other realm respond heavily to it. So it all clicked for me personally, though I know that's very hard to convince others of my faith. So I don't really push it. I try not to push it. But that's my channel. It started off as a kind of an attempt to understand what it is that makes people believe conspiracies to becoming a full believer in conspiracies myself (laughs) as a result of doing that. And I think that's how a lot of people start doing it. Yeah. And yeah, as, as a result of doing this and swimming in this sea of information, I inadvertently without knowing this is where I would end up became the creator of an incredibly niche topic which I think we're going to talk about today. (laughs) Yeah. But that's roughly where I come from as a background. Again, I've left out a lot of details about the experiences on DMT and things like that. But as a rough outline, it's basically new age Gnostic to Christian. And I've just run a YouTube channel for a decade, just talking about anything and everything. And it slowly has become a focused channel on biblical history and the Nephilim as time has gone on, among other things. But that's where I have ended up. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for explaining your backstory, Paul, and I'm grateful to have you here with this perspective. And I think a lot of people in my audience are going to be receptive to your information, regardless of their stance on Jesus, because it fits with so much of what we've been learning 
in the fields of conspiracy, in the fields of alternative history, in the fields of even alternative understandings of religion. Mm -hmm. We have these groups all over the world that, as you've shown, there's a pattern. And I don't want to put the cart before the horse just yet, but yeah, it's certainly some startling stuff that we're going to get into, and it connects all the way to the modern time. So folks who saw the word Nephilim in the description don't think that we're going to just be talking about biblical times. This connects to now. We're seeing clowns in modern culture, and as I put in the title, clowns are depictions of Nephilim. This is the series that you spent almost, what, 45 parts? There's 46 parts to this series on your YouTube channel. I mean, this is a big body of work you've been putting together there. Yeah, I mean, it spans over six years. I started in 2016, I think, around the time of the clown sightings that were going on at the time, that kind of scare was happening where people were dressing up like creepy clowns and hiding on dark street corners and mm. basically just trying to scare people. And I saw this happening and, I, and as a conspiracy thinker by this point, heavily seeped in all of this stuff deep into the biblical history narrative, studying the Nephilim and the origin of demons and the links to the Nephilim and so forth. I didn't trust that the media was putting a spotlight on these clowns. Something didn't sit right with me when I saw that for the first time. I was like, the media doesn't show you anything unless it wants you to see it. It's basically how my thought process behind this whole 2016 clown sighting phenomena, which was in America and in the UK. It was across the way in the Northern Hemisphere, at least. And something that, that was the start of it for me with the clown stuff, that something started to turn in my head and neurons started to fire. And I just, on a whim, I just typed into Google Nephilim and clowns. Not really, I don't know what I expected to find. <laughs> I just did from the back of this. And I found a video on YouTube. It was one video that had made this link at all. And it was somebody who was basically pretending to be a conspiracy theorist. It was a parody video of somebody imitating a stereotype conspiracy theorist. And they were basically going on to explain about the Nephilim and the biblical history of the Nephilim and he mentioned that they had white skin and red hair. And he basically said the only logical conclusion is that the Nephilim were interdimensional killer clowns from out of space. And he said it in that History Channel mocking tone. And he yeah. wasn't being serious. Mm. He wasn't, he had no, he wasn't a researcher of any kind. It was just some guy taking the piss out of conspiracy theorists. But when he said that, it clicked in my mind. I went, wait a minute. What did he just, what did he just say? And it, I just went off on that tangent and I started to make connections. And here I am like, what is it now? So 2000, is it eight years, nine years, seven years later? It's been a long time since yeah. then. And the connections have just kept going. And I corroborated with Gary Wayne, the author of the Genesis 6 conspiracy. And he taught me a lot and gave me a lot of stuff with his book about how these Nephilim were described in, in biblical canon and outside of biblical canon and how there are all these ancient cultures that worshipped serpents, serpentine gods. And they may have, again, like I said, not putting the horse before the cart here, but there's a lot of parallels and connections I made throughout the process of doing this, which eventually proved to me, and I think I've made a good concerted effort over, like you said, about 36 episodes and 
hundreds of hours of extra content in live shows and extra streams and interviews when I'm like, I don't know if you've mentioned this, but I'm writing the book on it currently <laughs> and I'm 11 chapters in. And it, it seems to me that what we call a clown in a Western sense, this image we have of a clown with white skin and red hair and the multicolored clothing and the particular high brow ridge makeup and the red nose with the wide red mouth. All of these things are caricatured features of the Nephilim as they were when they roamed the earth in a physical form. And it seems like the clown, as I've uncovered more and more, is an intentional thing that was created on purpose within the 1800s exactly as a costume design change to the harlequinades of the medieval period. And it was designed specifically by those involved with secret societies and Freemasonry. I'll drop names later as we go into more detail about it. And it's actually used as a, how do I explain this? I've been trying to say this over and over again for six years, the best way to explain this. And I think basically my research has led me to understand that the clown is created in a way in which secret societies can dress like the demons they venerate without the public realizing it. And therefore they can then perform rituals in front of audiences or the profane masses who wouldn't understand the symbol esoterically exoterically it's just a buffoon there to entertain the masses and make them laugh esoterically it's a direct symbolic reference to their gods their their demon gods and if you think about it just oh it's so sinister because when the average person thinks of a ritual they think men in black robes around some kind of pentagram with candles and sure that might be happening behind closed doors but just the the utter sheer in-your-faceness, I guess braggadocia, I don't know the correct term, but it is very thumbing their nose at the public. Look at what we can do in front of you. And I'm just blown away. I mean, I, obviously Steven Snyder put us in touch and you had some conversations with him and I followed up and watched a bunch of your YouTube channel videos, but I'm really glad to find out that you have a book on the way. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because when I was younger, I rem- I have a very distinct memory of a peer that I went to camp with having an intense fear reaction when a bluefish mascot. So we had the local baseball team is the bluefish, right? And the mascot comes in. This kid freaks out like somebody had a gun, like he was about to be killed. And it just always stuck with me. Like, why would he have that intense fear reaction to a mascot? It's supposed to be like a silly looking animal type humanoid thing, right? And when you think about it, and there are people who have this same fear with clowns. I don't know the correct term, phobia, but it's almost, it feels like it could be instinctual in the sense that the same way we react to a snake or a spider we're reacting to these anthropomorphic sort of beings that have features that remind us, at least our minds, of these ancient beings, mythological beings, so to speak. And as you put it, I mean, there's a sense of realness to all this that's dawned on you through your spiritual experiences and now you're turned towards Christianity. You realize there's this is real stuff. Yeah, I, I just I think clowns is it's the tip of the iceberg in a lot of ways 
because we see this sort of pattern unfolding in the West with clowns, mascots, theater, and now there's other sort of weird, I guess you would call it like a de-evolution of humanity or I don't know, pro not profane, but just a sort of like ugliness, like an uglification, like getting us to worship. And when you think about the biblical stories, the Nephilim are jealous of us, right? The Nephilim mm -hmm. want to experience what we have. And maybe if they have some humans that are allied with them, they're using these sort of powers against us on a mass scale. I mean, that connects a lot of dots to most conspiracy theorists, I think. So maybe we should start at the beginning with all this and talk about the Nephilim first before we go into how clowns became a sort of depiction of the Nephilim. Sure, absolutely. Just to quickly, some of the points you've hit there. Yeah. In terms of the modern era, there is a thing you like to call the multicolored collective. I'm not, I don't think I'm allowed to say what they actually are. <laughs> but there's, there's a certain group of individuals today who are, let's say in a mainstream sense, very liberal leaning, who are imposing their ideological will onto the rest of society. And they do have their banner as the multicolored flag. And in terms of spiritual manifestations, again, it'll become a lot clearer as we go on to discuss this, but I do think there are people out there who have, like you said, uglified themselves in a sense and changed the color of their hair to something bright and colorful, put on a mask of makeup, which changes the normal human form to be something a lot more closer to a clown. And I do think these are spiritual manifestations of a physical manifestations of a spiritual possession type situation. Mm. I think um, the phrase I was looking for was spiritual degradation. And yeah, you've nailed it on the head. And I heard you talking about this with Stephen and the past eight years have felt like it's sped up. It's been around our whole lives, but it's sped up in the past five to eight years for sure. Yeah, if just visually, it does feel like the demonic spirits, which are Nephilim, which we'll explain in a second through history, are manifesting themselves more and more physically into our world through the people they control. Hence why a lot of people are coming from a natural, beautiful, normal human look, usually turn their way through the university system, come out the other side, mutilating their own bodies and dyeing their hair crazy colors and changing their appearance to be far from human. I do think it is like the spiritual becoming more manifest as the braver and bolder and the more society gets further away from God, the more they have the ability to manifest. It's a case of having the Holy Spirit or not. If you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, something else will fill that void, unfortunately. That's a part of spiritual warfare. I think a lot of people just aren't aware of, especially if they've never contemplated what a demon even is or where they come from. So let's get into that, shall we? And let's talk about the origin of the Nephilim. So I've got my book up here, actually, which I'm, I'm, my first 10 chapters are basically a biblical history, a very summarized Cliff Notes version of the biblical history of the Nephilim and where they come from and why they exist to begin with, what the point of them being created was, how they vanished and where they are now. Let's start with the name itself. Nephilim is an umbrella term. It covers a lot of things. It's under the term Nephilim. It can be defined as, let's say, men of renown, giants, tyrannical rulers. The one thing that's synonymous with the word Nephilim is that they were not human. That's one thing that has to be clear. They were something else, a hybrid of the sorts, and they, they were very big. They were tall and fearsome in nature. 
And more specifically to the word Nephilim, they were kings. They were rulers of a sort for a period of time, a very long time ago. And that basically explains their extreme pride and hubris and the demonic nature today in disembodied form. So there was this thing going on in a time that we only have echoes of. And we have a biblical understanding of it through things like the Book of Enoch or Genesis. This time before an event which we call a flood of some kind. Now, biblically speaking, you can go with the narrative, but there is plenty of corroborating evidence for this narrative outside of the biblical canon. I've written about, in chapter eight, I've got about 16 pages dedicated to going through every single continent and every single country within each continent and explaining their own individual flood myths. So there does seem to be a lot of evidence to say that the Bible was talking about something quite literal. This wasn't a metaphorical flood, and it seems like there was a purpose behind all of this, which is murky and cloudy, and it's it, as Gary Wayne in his own book has written, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, there does seem to be some kind of concerted effort to suppress the knowledge of the existence of giants and what we call the Nephilim. Under the umbrella term of Nephilim, I think there are other things such as corrupted hybrid humans as well. I do believe there was a period of time in which human beings decided to, and I've coined my own phrase here, Nephilimify themselves to be like the gods that they venerated that were physically walking around and ruling over them at the time, a lot like celebrity worship. You try to mimic the thing you idolize. And I think there's a lot of, there was a lot of that going on just before the flood. So let's start from the start and talk about the rebellion. So we've all, we all hear about this angels rebelled against God and were cast down to earth. Lucifer, got proud basically and wanted to be like God. And then something happened. There was some kind of war. And next thing we know, he's cast down to earth. And the early Genesis story kind of brushes over these things quite quickly. Things like the flood of Noah and the giants being there. And it gives like one paragraph sentences about it. Like the tower of Babel has a paragraph and then it moves on to the next thing. Cause I do believe a lot of these early stories that we have a biblical canon were written with the assumption that the reader already knows these stories, that the extra biblical pseudepigraphical apocryphal texts make very clear and expand upon these very short paragraphs that are found in Genesis. So what we can discover is that there was this, especially if you read the book of Enoch and the book of Jubilees, is that angels seem to come down to earth at some point and mix themselves with humans. And I will just speculate from my research, basically why this was done. It does appear that the angels that did this were the seraphim angels. They were the angels right next to God, next to the cherubim. The cherubim can't move from their positions. They're in a very literal sense, a part of the support structure of the universe. They're not allowed to move from their allotted place, but there was this other type of angel right next to God described in Ezekiel as the seraphim, which were serpent-like beings if we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a fragmented book called The Testament of Amran, which goes into this. And I think Amran was the was he the grandfather, I think, of Moses or something like that. And he in this testimony basically is visited by two angels and they are they say their names are Belaliah and another one is Melchizedek. And it seems like 
if you go into the, uh, the dictionary, the book of the names of demons, it's this big tome you can get where everyone's compiled these biblical names and where they come from. Belial is actually basically the Satan. It's Lucifer. It's just another name for him. And Lucifer was a seraphim angel. And the description of this seraphim angel, this Belial in the book of Amran, specifically says they had the face like a viper. Um, and also the visage and the colors of the skin is like that of an adder. So they were serpent beings. The seraphim specifically are described as serpent-like winged monstrosities, basically. It seems like a lot of the angels described as having animalistic features, kind of chimerically melded into this winged visage. The cherubim are described as living creatures, and they have the head of a lion and a goat and all sorts of things just melded together with multiple wings all about, covered in eyeballs. You know, when you get this this psychedelic depicted vision of the biblically accurate angels, which you find all over social media, which are actually pretty on point with the descriptions from Ezekiel. But these cherubim specifically are serpent-like. The word seraphim in its, uh, in its understanding, in its Hebrew transliteration, basically means burning. And in its plural sense as well, it literally just means serpent. And I think the link to burning is that the venomous bite of a serpent is where they get this whole seraph or seraphim word being used to describe serpents, basically. And they apply it to the angels too, the specific class of angels, serpents. Gary Wayne speculated that these may have been looked like dragons, which we have mythologized all throughout ancient cultures. One famous example is the feathered serpent Quetzalcoatl in the Americas, and he is described as a feathered serpent, so a serpent with wings or a seraphim angel. So this specific class of angel, which Lucifer was a part of, seemed to come down to earth and mix itself with human women. Now we can get in deep into the narrative of Cain and the specific humans that they got involved with, I break it down in my book, but there's basically two cases of heavenly jealousy and pride with Lucifer and his angels who chose to rebel. And then there was on earth at the time, this human rebellion and pride going on through Cain, who obviously murdered his brother Abel and went on to produce his own cities. And then Seth was born and that lineage was doing its own agrarian natural order with the land type of thing. And then Cain was going off dominating the land and building cities and doing his own kind of earthly human rebellion and i think it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation and i do believe it's the daughters of cain who mixed with the seeds of the angels who were rebelling against god it's a pact we both we're both pissed off at god let's work together and corrupt this creation together and that's basically what the antediluvian age became it became a cesspool of corruption all by intentional design now why did the angels rebel I think it's fascinating that Gary Way makes it clear and he, he has a lot of evidence for this, but it seems like Adam and Eve were not the first humans as we know them. It seems like there was some kind of proto race created and the passage of that is in Genesis. And it basically says he created man and woman, plural, together at once and told them to multiply and subdue the earth. And then it tells the story of Adam immediately after. And Adam has a different story. Adam was created and then placed in a garden. That's not what we're told about the peoples before him. We're told the peoples before him were created, both man and woman, and we're told to go out and procreate and fill the earth and kind of just be like a gardener's free, caretaker's free in a way. And then Adam was created and placed in the Garden of Eden. And then later Eve was created as a mate for him specifically. 
So this kind of answers the question of who were these cities built for that Cain was making after they expelled from Garden of Eden and Cain was born. And then he killed his brother and was exiled into the earth. He built cities. He took a wife. From who did he take a wife? For who filled these cities? Who helped him build these cities? And it answers a lot of questions when you consider that um, they weren't the first humans. They were simply a chosen human. They were picked apart and God decided, I'm going to basically groom Adam specifically to be the leader over all of earth. And up until this point, we don't know how much time had passed while uh, before Adam was created and these humans were on the earth just doing their thing. But during this time, it's speculated that these seraphim angels, these watchers, were ruling over the humanity at that time. All these people that were told to subdue the earth. And they were seen as gods. They were venerated as gods. They were the superior beings on the earth over these masses of humans. In the Popol Vul, which is, an Az- I think, an Aztec or a Mayan book, it talks about an entity that had a golden throne and it was ordained in all these jewels And he was basically a god among all the men of that time. And they worshipped him and basically were a slave class to him. And then the story goes that he got prideful against the true creator and then was basically cast down and stripped of all of his power. And that's the Lucifer story, just in this other pagan culture. But they describe him as being like their leader at a time, like a god who was on earth that they had to work for. And then I think when God made this decision, to place man as the ruler over earth. I don't think these angels who were previously seen as gods appreciated that. I think they were jealous of that fact. I think they probably thought, why has God chosen a mammalian, stupid monkey-like entity when clearly the reptile is the more superior race? And that's when a decision was made to rebel against God's decision. And the angels refused to serve Adam and instead chose to corrupt the creation as best they could. And that's where we have deceiving Adam and Eve to eat from the apple of tr- the tree of good and, of, uh, good and evil, kicked out of the, uh, the garden. There's tons of speculation about whether or not seeds Cain was mixed with the serpent seed or Lucifer slept with Eve and created Cain, so corrupted the bloodlines from then on. So that, but whether that's true or not, it's neither here nor there. What matters is that a part of this rebellion story was that the watchers who were assigned to watch the people were convinced, it seems, by Lucifer and Azazel, who were working hand in hand to sleep with human women. And some of them did, not all of them did, but 200 we know, as I said in the book of Enoch, did decide to do this. And the offspring of mixing serpent-like gods with humans as we know them the natural consequence of that was what we call the nephilim were these psychedelic looking monstrosities that just kept growing and at first they were seen as demigods they were seen as heroes they were seen as something amazing and incredible something to look up to and aspire to be and they performed amazing feats. They killed vicious monsters for people because they had these amazing powers, the ability to do things human beings could not simply do by virtue of their divine nature. But it seems like that was extremely short-lived, that period where they were considered heroes. And it, we can read in the book of Jasher that they eventually humans couldn't sustain them anymore, couldn't feed them. They were too big. They couldn't keep them satisfied or happy in any sense. So they eventually turned on each other and on people, and they started to eat people. 
We find throughout outside of biblical canon a similar story going on in the past, especially in the Greek pantheon of gods with Zeus and, and all of his acolytes. And we find that there's these multiple stories of the gods, the pantheons of gods, which are probably analogous to the fallen angels in the biblical narrative, basically raping human women and creating monstrosities and demigods. Hercules is probably one of the most famous examples of this. But you find that all the gods of the Pantheon did some pretty sneaky, heinous, disgusting things to produce children with human women. And the most common practice seemed to be pretending to be the husband of a wife of a king. While the king was away, they would come down into the form of the king and then sleep with the queen. Uh, it seems like there was a pattern emerging through this where it was like they were trying to produce legitimate heirs of kingship and rulership over the people of the earth by raping through sneaky covert means the wives of kings and the daughters of kings as well. Wow. It's yes, yeah, it's, it's it seems like it was a so very orchestrated, concerted effort to corrupt all of creation and place in positions of rulership over all of mankind, what the fallen angels thought should have been at the very beginning, a serpentine race, which is the Nephilim. And that's their creation. That's how they were first to create it. So I'll stop there for now. We can go into the rest later. But yeah. Wow. I mean, it's baffling and it seems straight out of our modern movies where <laughs> the villain is actually related to the protagonist, right? I mean, this is like one of these archetypical stories that goes on and on. And the seraphim yeah. standing right there next to God says, if we'll, we're not going to be the chosen one, then we'll rape the chosen one's daughter and become the chosen one. I mean, how sinister is that? Jeez. And this oh, yeah, is the yeah, difficulty. It's... I'm a Catholic. I should have learned all this in my CD class. No way. They weren't teaching us any of this stuff. And I think it's because obviously Vatican and Catholic Church departed from what they initially were a long time ago. And maybe we could talk about that later on. But yeah, it's fascinating. Paul, I really appreciate you schooling me on all that because and the audience too. I'm sure this is new for a lot of them. Because it clears up a lot of these sort of questions that I think people are still asking today, but they're from the perspective of scientism, right? Oh, we can't be alone. There must be aliens out there. Why wouldn't you assume that the aliens or these other beings are here? Like, it's just silly that people have this sort of forward-thinking thought that, oh, the aliens must be out there. Meanwhile, we have these amazing histories of other beings doing these epic and disastrous downright sinister things and it's all been oh, yeah. forgotten it's all been left out when the nephilim were around during the reign of terror it, the, the earth was truly a corrupted heinous horrible place to be i mean i wrote this passage in my book which basically is from the perspective of just the everyday man living in that time <laughs> and i try to have a bit of fun with it i try and have a laugh with this and make it humorous i'm talking about clowns for god's sake i've got to put some humor in there but i'm basically depicting this world where you wake up every morning 
and all men had nothing but evil continuously in their hearts and they their idols were these giants who cannibalized them and had nothing but hubris and pride and believed they were the greatest things ever and were gods and the people venerated that and they saw that as power and something worthy of trying to be like which is not much different from how people behave today they respond to power and authority in that respect and try to emulate it so during this time of utter corruption we had chimera hybrids roaming around as genetic engineering was being messed with and kinds were being mixed together. This is, let's say this is just before the flood, like the 500 year period before the flood, before everything was a full reset. We had cults everywhere and these religious cults everywhere, which were focused on away from God and venerating the Nephilim, the pantheons of gods, the fallen angels, under many names, different guises, all with their own stories and lies, basically. But they were all talking about the same characters. And as long as they were focusing either on the pantheon of gods or their children as the gods, they were happy. They were serpent cults. They were sun cults. It was worshipping nature rather than God, worship the creation rather than God, which is the roots of paganism. These false idols basically create golden calves, create statues of these gods, worship the statues, and you can communicate directly with the pantheons in the sky and the watchers. People, so people weren't focusing on God. They had no connection to him whatsoever, the true creator. The agenda was in full flow and working. So it was this period of time in the Antediluvian age where it was a godless, sinful, horrible time to be alive. When the angels had won in that respect for that short period, they had achieved what they set out to do. And that was utterly corrupt God's intention for mankind and the creation. And these people were brutal. So people were choosing to manipulate their own DNA because they hated this fleshly, human, weak body compared to these giants walking around who were invincible and immortal and strong and fierce and fast. I want to be like that is the attitude a lot of humans had. And they resented God for not creating humans in such a way. This horrible attitude was ingrained into humans where they had nothing but the desire for power, lust and greed. Just that's all they cared about, essentially. And I know it sounds weird to be quite two-dimensional about these antediluvian people. I'm sure they had their own philosophies and religions and thoughts at the time, but it was all... It's just centered around the worship of the Nephilim. That's all it was around. That's, they were there in front of them, right there, and they couldn't deny it. And who who could stand up to one anyway? It, fear alone would keep you in line during that time. What are you going to do? You're going to stand up to a giant? <laughs> You're not. You're going to get on your knees and worship that thing and hope it understands empathy and does not kill you. <laughs> That's all you can hope for. So this, people were subdued. They were the kings and rulers all over the earth. They were in positions of rulership and power. Monuments were built to them. Uh, cigarettes were built. Huge structures, were, uh, megalithic structures were built with ease by the beings. It wasn't tough. It wasn't difficult. And we have remnants of all of it today still. But during this time of utter corruption, we did have the lineage of Seth that kind of stayed as pure as it possibly could be during this time. But we know that by, it was the sixth generation after Adam. So it was during the times of Jared is when the angels came down and decided to mix themselves. So Cain had already done his own form of corruption up until this point before the angels came down and made the Nephilim. They came down, Cain had already built these cities, subdued the peoples of the earth that were already there. Because Cain alone with the knowledge that he had from Adam was like a God. He knew things humans just did not know. He said to introduce weights and measures, which seems like nothing to us, basic math. But then the introduction of that to an agrarian society changed things. It made 
as soon as you measure something and quantify something, then it can be owned and it can be sold and it can be uh, land becomes a thing. Borders get drawn and war gets introduced as a result of the desire to have these things and keep it from others. So it's, it goes into Joshua, all these things you introduce, which again, to us seems so simple, like masonry and maths and basic stuff, which he got from Adam who walked with God and was taught all this stuff. So Cain alone was seen as a God. And then he hated God for everything, basically rejecting him completely. Again, there's speculation that maybe he wasn't fully Adams anyway. Then he had this hatred and jealousy in him by virtue of his real father, which it might possibly be of of a serpent origin. But again, that's it's hard to say whether that's the case or not. But what is the case is that he he wasn't a good person. We can say that much at the very least. He had a son called Enoch himself which he uh, he named his first city after. Was it Lamech? I can't remember. Yeah, no, but, uh, there was two Enochs during this time. There was Enoch the evil, Enoch the good. So just after Jared was Enoch, and Enoch was basically, he lived. they lived for a long time, these people. They lived like hundreds of years. So they lived to see a lot of things each. And basically, this bad Enoch from Cain's lineage, who was born first, introduced these false religions first, which were sun cults, worship cults. And then later became his children became the leaders and rulers and orchestrators of the serpent cults. Once the pact with the fallen angels was made to make these Nephilim rulers, they invented corrupt religion basically on that dark side, but the Seth side, the, the good lineage all the way through down to Noah, basically they tried to stay as pure as possible, but it, by Noah's generation, there was nothing left. It was all corrupt. They were all gone, all the children, and from Jared onwards. I think it only took four generations to just completely annihilate everything. But it wasn't long for these giants to just completely rule over and destroy everything and annihilate everything. And that's basically when a flood was ordained to reset the situation. That's what it was for. That was the purpose. There was no other purpose than to just destroy the established order which was just pure misery and pain for everybody involved other than those who orchestrated it. So that, that's what happened. God basically said to Noah, build a boat, and I'm going to save your children and their wives, and we're going to start again. Now, there are plenty of stories. This is where contrarian stuff comes into it. Mainstream biblical canon and church would have you believe that nobody but Noah survived. That's just not true. That's just a, that's a very naive, simplistic way of viewing a situation. There's plenty of stories outside of biblical canon that show people surviving floods all over the earth. And it's a different story, some similar to Noah. Some of them are maybe actually a Noah story just told with different names. Some of them are similar to Noah's experience, but not Noah, a completely different known entity. A good example is the Epic of Gilgamesh. You have Zuizudra, who is basically a, he was a king of Larsa, a city called Larsa, an antediluvian city. He was the 10th king, actually, of that time. He was the last king of that period. The flood came, and he was told by Enlil and Enki to build a boat. And he did, <laughs> and he survived the flood as well. And then he went on, it says, to live forever, which is quite interesting. He was given immortality. Noah wasn't a king. He didn't rule over Larsa. He died about 300 years after the flood or something like that. A completely different person, different character, very similar narrative. 
But I do believe some of the fallen angels who were privy to God's plan told some of the Nephilim offspring, there's a flood coming, prepare. And some of them did survive. So we have the Nephilim before and after the flood. We do. But there's this, there was this weird time period just before the flood. So we have to make it clear that the angels who created the Nephilim were punished. Okay. They were bound in chains and punished, but the, a part of their punishment was this, cru- it was intense. They were basically made to watch their children, the Nephilim, kill each other in brutal battles for power, basically. So the Nephilim weren't very smart, is what we've gathered. They were just power-hungry, cannibalistic brutes who literally all they had going for them was their immense strength and power. They didn't really have much intelligence. They were hubris, full of pride, like the typical ogre or troll, the modern-like depictions, like brain-dead but powerful. That's how roughly what these things were like in, in some respect, the big ones, the initial ones. And it says in Enoch that they were made to watch their beloved kill each other. That's a part of the punishment that the angels had to suffer. So I think a lot of the first generation Nephilim and a lot of their children were wiped out before the flood in these bloody, brutal, epic, land-destroying battles. Things were just destroyed by the, the nature of these things killing each other. This is what was called or stylized as the Clash of the Titans in the Greek mythology. Although I think it's the Titanokami, I think it's described as well. And not only were these Nephilim, these Titans fighting themselves and other titans but they were also going for their own parents they wanted to be the only gods they were that full of pride just like their parents the fallen angels that they thought why should i have gods above me i'm going to go and kill the gods so that's the titans fighting mount olympus in the greek mythology going after the fallen angels at the top of mount olympus and trying to fight them it's the same game with different names and these this thing happened all over the earth there's plenty of stories of the gods fighting with giants and it seems like the end of it all they tried to spin it as though the gods were the heroes who destroyed the evil monsters missing out the part where they created the evil monsters to begin with this is (laughs) as long as they can maintain the veneration from the the ignorant masses then they'll twist the story however they can it seems but the biblical narrative straightens it out and basically that was just that's what happened. They had to watch their own children kill each other and they had to kill their own children because they were trying to kill them. It was brutal. And there's a passage in the book of Noah in within the book of Enoch, which is from Michael, the angel who witnessed it. And he, Michael basically says, I'm paraphrasing here, but what he basically says is, whoa, that was brutal. That is absolutely terrifying. I'm literally shaking at what I've just seen. There is absolutely no way any other angel would even dare to do what those angels did ever again by virtue of how brutal their punishment was. End quote. That's pretty much what Michael, one of the most powerful angels, said as a result of witnessing the punishment that these watchers had to have. So a lot of the Nephilim were utterly just removed from the earth about 120 years before the flood. They were gone. And this is where the Nephilimify thing starts to come in. There were people left, and there were still Nephil and Elio, which were the children and the children's children of the original Nephilim. So they weren't as big or tall, but they were still 
Nephilim. They were still not human. They were still part serpent, something else. So they were maybe a bit smaller, but still fearsome warriors. And these were still the kings. So Isidra is a good example. as one of the last kings of this period. He was taller than the average man, stronger. He was a descendant of the original Nephilim. So the bloodline was there. The serpent blood was still within humanity. But the initial giant giants, the, the ones which were just astronomically huge, were dead. They were gone before the flood. The flood was just there as a last thing to wipe the slate clean as best we can and get rid of the infrastructure in place. The cities that have been built orchestrated around the worship of this false rulership. That's the last move by God there to do basically destroy the infrastructure. So during this 120-year period, it's described that mankind began to sin against all the animals of the earth, the fowls of the air, the beasts of the land, and began mixing kinds, it says. Very specific. The mixing of kinds was taking place. And it seems during this period is where we started to get the human-animal hybrids. So think of a centaur as a good example for that, or the nagas, which are found all over Indian culture, half serpent, half human we have the chimera creatures the hydras greek mythology i think echidna who was a nymph slash siren mated with a, another monster who created many other monsters so there was humans had mixed themselves with animals and they'd also mixed a bunch of animals together and it's described like this in the, in not only the original bible the canon but the extra biblical text all flesh was corrupt and that's what it means. All flesh had just been mashed together into mon- monstrosities. The original designs of all of the creatures were gone. And all that had been bred into existence over this 120-year period was mythological beings that we call today. And this is a fantasy land like the world of Warcraft you're imagining here now for this period, full of all these elves and dwarves and, like I said, half horse, half humans, mermaids, that, those type of people, winged people. All that was going on during that last 120-year period, the Nephilim were wiped out, the humans started mixing DNA and continuing the corruption as best they could. Don't forget, not all the rebellious angels mated with women. So some of them were still around, and they were still teaching humans things that they shouldn't have known, keeping the corruption, keeping the agenda going. The ones who had sex with the women are now locked up, were still here, and we still have an agenda type of thing. And then by virtue of people having these superpowers we'll call them now, which is what they are X-Men, and now they are hybrid humans. They are now people who can breathe underwater. They are now people who can fly. They are now people who can go without food for extremely long periods of time and hibernate. There are people who have selected traits from animals and adapted them into their own genome. These are people who have abilities that humans do not have abilities let's say to survive a great deluge (laughs) and that's what happened a lot of them did survive i believe along with those kings and rulers from the original nephilim who survived in boats as well so most of them were killed not a lot of it was minute to the amount of survivors but the traces of the nephilim did survive and we know this because most of numbers and deuteronomy and chronicles is all depicting the fight against the remnants of the nephilim after the flood the reclaiming of the lands of canaan is the people of israel god's people who is a nation he had forged was to go and reclaim these lands which god had claimed for them which were just full of giants it's like the giants had purposely waited there to try and stop god from (laughs) rebuilding his people so we do know there were giants after the flood and to explain how they got there 
there's many ways, like I just said, then they survive by floating on things. They survive by flying above the water. They survive by actually living in the water. We have stories of the Dagon fish gods coming out of the water and <laughs> becoming the gods of people after the flood. There's one particular story in Ecuador of these two brothers surviving a flood by climbing to a high mountain. And then when the water disappears, two bird women appear. <laughs> and basically the men rape these bird women and produce offspring, continuing the corruption of mankind after the flood. And this is a completely detached story in Ecuador that has nothing to do with the Middle East. But their story is specifically a flood happened, some men survived, and then slept with human-women-bird hybrids. Right. Why would they have that story? They have no reason to have that story. And they all claim today we're all descendants of this human-hybrid bloodline these people in Ecuador. They're called the Canary people, if you want to look into it. Mm. It's just, but the stories like that are all over the place, random little pockets of survival of the Nephilim. And you have to remember, if all flesh was corrupted, then anything that survived the flood, including those two men, was also a Nephilim hybrid of some kind. They had done something to themselves. So the corruption continued, and it seems like the final culling of the big ones, the big giants, was in the Canaan. And you can follow the stories of generations after generation of Israel, all the way down to David, basically just wiping out these giants, these huge things. And they have, I'm actually writing the chapter now on the description of them in my book. And the things like they were called the Emims, which was the Moabites name for the Rephaim. The Rephaim translates to dead ones. So these were the spirits of the Nephilim and also the, uh, by definition, Nephilim are dead because they don't have a soul like we do, if you get what I mean. They don't have the ability to leave the earth once dead. They kind of stay here, and that's where we get demons from. All these Nephilim killed each other. All these hybrid humans who corrupted themselves were wiped out by a flood. Their spirits remained, and that's what a demon is. That's why we have demons. That's an unclean spirit. That's why they exist. They didn't just come out of nowhere. They're not just some ethereal archetypical symbol in the mind of the human's collective consciousness or whatever you want to hypothesize about. They are a very specific, real entity, entities with emotions, a backstory, a history, and had a life at one point. Some of them were worshipped as kings and gods. Others were just petty humans who corrupted their own selves to try and be like the gods but that's where they come from. They have an origin story. They have a purpose and they have agendas still today. This is where the phenomenon of demonic possession comes from. What's the purpose of that? Why possess a human being? What do they have to gain from that? What they gain is a body with the ability to have senses, to experience things that they miss and yearn for, that they once used to be able to, to do. Jesus himself said when a demon is cast, when an unclean spirit is cast out of a man, it wanders in dry places and it hungers and thirsts, but cannot quench those things. It's constantly hungry and desires and has these needs and wants it cannot fulfill. So it, as soon as you cast it out, it waits and will come happily back into that body it was just cast out of if you haven't filled it with the Holy Spirit, basically. And that's what the whole point of being filled with the Holy Spirit is for. If you haven't got the Spirit of God in you, there are things out there that are willing to take that place if you don't fill it with something else. They're just waiting, they're biting at the bit to, to, for you to be an empty vessel for them to take control of. I mean, 
the only problem for them is it's not optimal right now to possess a human because as soon as a human being realizes they have the authority through Jesus to cast them out, it's game over. So it's a messy process for a demon to, to possess somebody. It's not ideal. And I do believe there are modern agendas at place today to build new bodies for them that can't cast them out, that can never have the Holy Spirit. We can go into transhumanism and all sorts of other things to justify that. But this, these entities, their agenda never stopped. They just don't have a body anymore. And the angels who didn't mate with the humans are still around. And the agenda never stops. But I suppose it's that old adage, isn't it? The, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, the history of the Nephilim, of the creation and their death, basically, they were wiped out after the floods. The final culling happened. One very famous story is David and Goliath with the sling and everything like that. That was during the final culling period. I do believe there are still, I do believe a lot of Nephilim did flee the Middle East during that time, didn't stick around to get slaughtered. I think some of them did survive to the modern age, but wherever they end up, if they encounter humans, they get killed. I think that's pretty much the pact that God has laid out for them. There's there's no choice in the matter. I mean, there's the famous story of uh, the tall, white-skinned, red-haired giants of the Paiute tribes in America who were in Lovelock Cave. I think that's a very modern story. It's an oral tradition story, but I think it maybe happened a few hundred years ago, you know. There are pockets of survival. And yeah, like I said, if they encounter humans, they die. Point. Of it being recent, the Paiutes have that story, but we have several stories from this sort of age of exploration period. I believe Patagonia was named Patagonia because, I forget the gentleman's name, but as he was sailing around the southern tip of South America, he witnessed a very large human-like being who didn't speak their language, obviously, and mimed to them this little, like, dance and then came aboard the ship and they took him, attempted to take him back to Europe and the giant died in passing. But that's where Patagonia got its name. There are several other stories. My friend Dr. Narco is talking about all this old world Florida stuff. He's found some stories in Florida of giant Nephilim. Brad Olson, who was on this show a while back, told me that very same story and also pointed out in Chicago or near Chicago in the United States, there is a sort of stone head with a open skull and he thinks that it was used for sacrifice and it's a sort of depiction of a Nephilim, this carving in a rock that's used to drain blood apparently. Send me a link to that. I'd like to see that. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. All, all over the earth, there's remnants of these things everywhere. And that's what my series is about. It is to explain that every culture on the earth, if you look, basically look at the folk traditions of each culture, uh, so outside of Christian, usually the Christian, I look at the pagan folk traditions that are basically said to be the oldest traditions of the land of that sp- specific area. You'll find that they all have the same theme about them, the same imagery, the same aesthetical way of venerating the demons, the Nephilim. And they don't call them that. They call them ancestor spirits. And if you go off what I told you about the Canary people, they literally believe they are the ancestors of their people. 
So a lot of these pagan tribes worship these nature deities, which again are just more Nephilim that continued after the flood and perhaps even from before. I mean, you're talking about this old world exploration, an example of human beings that are no longer human, which are hybrids. The Blemiers are a very good example of the headed, the chest people, human beings without heads, but their faces in the chest. And there's maps, old world maps that depict these people drawn on them. They, their tribe is over here. And there's people with one leg and like this warped people. There's the, uh, the Silocephalies, which are the dog-headed men. And these aren't that long ago. These, these are entities that seem to be in the modern consciousness of the medieval people. You know what I mean? A thousand years ago type of thing. It's, and today they're gone now. And it's all just in the realm of fairy tale now. But you find that, no, that it, Quite recently, it seems like the last of them were hidden or killed or removed. And it seems like there's been a concerted effort to completely change human history to be just nothing but this secular, boring, plain evolutionary standard where nothing exciting happened and it all was slowly developed over millions of years type of attitude. But if you look at actual recent ancient history through these these old world documents, it seems like people really were contending with things like dragons not that long ago. <laughs> one one example is Globeki Tepe. When you look at these structures being unearthed there in Turkey, you find depictions of animal hybrids, creatures that don't necessarily exist in the modern zoological record. It makes you wonder, you know, what else? There's even, is it Mount Ararat where they found an ark? On a mountain, they had to dig some deep depth into the mountain's peak, but they found a wooden ship that would have been circa Noah's period. And obviously, as you pointed out, Noah was not the lone survivor of the flood. The Phoenicians, which were boat people, I've heard that they have serpent-worshipping proclivities and maybe connections to the Nephilim. But they, the Phoenicians are the ones that have these the fish cults of Dogon, right. Dagon fish cults, and they believe they had these gods come out of the sea. They worshipped them, and these are probably people who survived the flood who were human fish hybrids, sirens we would call them. I mean, it's interesting, it even says in the Book of Enoch that the women who mated with the angels became sirens. Mm. They're the ones who became the snake women, the fish women, the bird women. And I don't, it's not made clear if that was a punishment by God for what they did, or if it was a gift by the angels they slept with for what they did, will make you like gods yourself, will make you superhuman for doing this with us, for creating the Nephilim type of thing. It's trippy. The history is incredibly trippy. Um, if you go across all these modern folk traditions today, though, we, you can find echoes of what these ancient tribes were living among. So, this thing called ancestor worship is a worldwide phenomenon, and they all, so they all have their own way of depicting it. In Europe specifically, we have a different take on it. We do the whole dressing like a demon to scare away demons type of attitude in Europe. That's how we deal with it. So we have this thing called the wild men tradition in Europe. It's a very old tradition that goes way back to basically a Dionysus cult worship. So we're going far back to ancient Greece here. And the wild man symbolically is basically a tall, incredibly hairy man with a club. That's the most depictions of it. This is where we get the green man symbolism from. And the wildermen are depicted in ancient tapestries that show them attacking people coming out of the forests. They're like families of them, women, children, and men, these giant hairy monsters. And it's quite interesting because obviously this is akin to something that we would call today Bigfoot. 
it's the same thing, but it's the same description. And people say they're still here now and have encounters with them now. And they say they have supernatural abilities and it's not just simply just a big person. So from this Wilderman tradition, we have stories from, I think it's a French 14th century monk who talks about this gang of roving demons that go from village to village, just destroying the place and terrorizing people led by a giant with a club called Helikins. And similarly enough, that story actually goes back to ancient Greece. There was Dionysus and his band of satyrs and Mianads who were half human, half goat hybrids and, and these weird nymph-like women who would basically follow him from town to town, causing chaos and mayhem and revelry and drink and parties. So it's a kind of the same analogous idea of Helikins and his demon band going around Europe from village to village causing chaos to Dionysus and his troop of drunkards and human-animal hybrids going around from village to village causing chaos and parties. One's just a Christian interpretation of chaos and demon influence because there's a pagan aspect of freeing yourself from humanity and becoming animalistic it's just an all matter interpretation but it's the same story um, and this is where we get our modern day image of a clown from the european depiction of the wild man so in coming out of the medieval period we had these troops called commis de l'art movements within italy and france which would basically travel from village to village putting on shows for people and the stock characters they had were the Harlequin, the Clown, Pantaloon, Columbine. And they had to see stock characters and would make shows out of them. So they had the rich aristocrats of the day, the bumbling fool, the daughter of the rich aristocrats, the, the slave, which is what the clown comes from originally. And Harlequin's job was basically kind of like a devilish trickster figure in these early shows. And it was based directly on depictions of the wild man. He had the club and he had the tattered white clothing with multicolored patches on it to represent fur. And that's where Harlequin comes from. It's named after Helikins, the wild man leader of the demon troop. And it was understood Harlequin is the devil, basically. That's what people knew that to be back in the day. As years pass, Harlequin... His design was changed. It became more psychedelic. He had these diamond patterns put into his clothing. He had the hat with the feather put into there. The demon mask with the horns was taken away and it was replaced with a Venetian mask instead for the balls. And his character changed. He started to become more of a hopeless romantic rather than this cunning, wit-filled deviant. And he was doting over the daughter of the rich person trying to get him. And the clown character, the slave character, was always the foil for Harlequin. He became the devilish, wit-filled creature over time. The role got reversed. And you'll find in the 1800s, the pantomime and the Harlequin arts had come to Britain from Europe during this time. And a very famous acrobatic performer clown called Joseph Grimaldi was doing the rounds in the, in the circuit in London at that time. And Drury Lane... And the, Sadwell, I can't remember what it's called. This other, I think it's Sadwell Theatre, this, this other famous theatre in the same area, about 50, a 15 minute runaway, I think it was, these two theatres. And he was like one of the only performing clowns who performed at both. And he worked closely with a Freemason called Charles Dibdin, who took over Sadwell Theatre. He became the owner and proprietor of it, along with his brother, Thomas Dibdin. 
his, sorry, his son, Thomas Dibden, that's it. And they were in this business of writing plays, basically, and musicals and all sorts of things. Thomas Dibden, actually, and Charles Dibden was famous for writing nautical-themed things at the time, like really powerful nautical British music and poetry, and it was really popular during that age. But this high-level, this Freemason who was who's a big player in the entertainment industry of the day, let's say. <laughs> Not dissimilar from Freemasons being in control of the entertainment industry today. He worked with Joseph Grimaldi and got him to do a particular show called The Harlequin Amulet. And in this show, Charles decided we're going to change the costume of the clown and Harlequin in the 1800s. And Harlequin was no longer wearing the baggy, the baggy patchwork clothing anymore. It became tight like a leotard, tight-skinned, a sharp silhouette, and he glowed, he glittered, he shone. And then Clown also got a costume change. And that's where we get the very first depiction of a modern-day Western Clown in the 1800s, created by a Freemason, specifically for this one show in the 1800s, specifically for this very famous clown called Grimaldi. Mm. Grimaldi popularised the clown heavily, not long after his first wife died, actually, he went insane for two months. <laughs> and then when he did come back, he decided to change the makeup of the clown to be what it is today as well. So Charles Dibden is the guy who created the clown costume. Joseph Romaldi, the guy who put on the costume, invented the clown makeup that we know right. today. It was a concerted effort. Right. And I do believe the fact that Sorry, something's happened there with Siri. The fact that he created this clown outfit specifically, and he's a Freemason, and we know that Freemasonry, its roots go all the way back to this serpent worship cult of the antediluvian age. I think he may have known something about what he was doing there to popularize this character of the clown. Eventually, the clown overtook Harlequin, and Harlequin was no longer the lead character. The clown became the lead character, and the clown took on the role Harlequin originally had. So the clown literally has its roots in the wild man of Europe and demonic worship. It literally is a representation of a demon. There's actually no, historically speaking, that's what a clown actually is. And when you compare the clown iconography that what we see now as when you imagine a clown from the Western perspective, it lines up so well with a lot of what you were describing earlier with these depictions of ancestor worship, where even they go not just to great lengths with their costumes, but even with body modifications, putting on face paint, makeup, and some tribes even scar themselves in various different ways. But one, I think this is called in England or in the UK, the Glasgow smile. But wasn't this like body dysmorphic or modification done to children? I recently, I saw this video talking about this group of people called the Comprachicos, and Victor Hugo writes about them in his book, The Man Who Smiles, I believe, or The Man Who Laughs, I believe that's the name of the novel. And there's some evidence that there was an actual group of men in Europe who would take children and deform them in order to create these sort of mountbank, trickster, clown-type characters for the royal court. And I wonder 
given what we were talking about with the bloodlines and whatnot, I mean, are the royal families of medieval Europe connected to the Nephilim? I mean, they certainly, in some cases, went to pretty dastardly lengths. Inhuman feats were committed by uh, these people in a lot of cases, some of them drinking blood and other mm -hmm. things, but obviously creating hunchbacks and dwarves and other thing that's very cruel but do you think that has anything to do with this sort of time period where they were modifying genes now they couldn't in the more medieval period they couldn't maybe achieve that scientific genetic experiment but instead to symbolize it they would do these sort of barbaric surgeries to to people yeah uh, no you're right I the recluse, uh, Steve Snyder, did recommend me to look into the whole uh, the man who the grinning man, the man who laughs thing, and uh, Victor Hugo's work. He made a lot of artwork depicting clowns as well, Victor Hugo, which is quite strange and disturbing when you actually look at it. And yeah, there is this story of obviously people kidnapping children and deforming them with these smiles. And Gary Wayne believes the bloodlines of the royal families are people who believe they have serpent blood, the blue bloods. They are the ones who have. They are the direct descendants of the giants of the past. They believe they have the divine right to rule because of this. And that's why we have kings and queens right. as we know it today. It's nothing to do with God. <laughs> that's not what all of it's about. You can look at most of the coat of arms of these factions of kings and queens around the earth and usually have something like a mythical creature or a mermaid or a dragon or something on there. And that's where they have their roots. So it wouldn't surprise, I haven't looked into it specifically. So I don't, I wouldn't like to say I'm an authority on Victor Hugo's work. But it, does, it wouldn't surprise me if they were creating court jesters from these the abuse of children and drinking the blood of these children as well for the adrenochrome and all the, the sacrificial power and energy that goes into all this stuff to create these mimicries of their courtly spirits or the jesters, we'll call them. It really wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. I think in the West, the kings know what they're doing when they choose to dress a certain way. So let's look at Queen Elizabeth as a quintessential example. Wore what's known as a Venetian ceruse, which is this white caked makeup, which made you look white and porcelain. It was a lead-based one, actually. I think it killed her in the end. <laughs> they didn't really understand lead poisoning then. <laughs> but it would make your skin look white, porcelain clown white. Then she'd have the red blush, the red lipstick, and the huge red hair like an afro. And she would wear this psychedelic colored garments ordained in jewels that shone with this huge neck frill going around like a halo and all of these are hearkening back to who she believes she descends from which is the serpents the nephilim the white-skinned red-haired serpentine giants who had skin that shone eyes that shone had serpentine wide grinned mouth features like a snake they had all these things and you can see aristocracy trying to mimic that more because it's a symbol of power according to their history and their understanding of where they truly come from. Of course, the masses will never get told this, but if you look at the symbols, they're telling you without telling you what they are and what they're trying to do. So maybe it would be good to break down a clown and explain why it's to do with the Nephilim. Let's make it clear. Okay, so let's look at a quintessential clown. Again, this is something that it's all derivative from Charles Dibdin, Joey Grimaldi's original clown created in the West in the 1800s. And I believe it was by design, purposefully, from within the secret societies brought to the public to do this. And I'll explain after the description of the clown why that is the case as well, because there was a big event about circuses during that time. 
heavily orchestrated by Freemasonry and everything involved with Freemasonry, which makes it clear that clowns and the circuses are ritualistic performances. But first of all, a clown itself. So the base, the canvas it's all painted on is white skin. All Nephilim, everywhere you look, are depicted as being incredibly pale, white creatures. Even the birth of Noah, for example, his father, Lamech, ran to his father saying, Dad, I don't know what's happened. My son looks like one of the children of the fallen angels, right? He has bright white skin. <laughs> we know that for a fact that's what the children of fallen angels look like because it's there in the Bible. He, has, he looks like one of them. His eyes are shining. He is shining. He's shimmering. His skin is porcelain white, and he has this golden glowing hair. So you either have red-haired giants or golden-haired giants or some kind of colourful thing going on. And the eyes were huge, and they they shined. They were also known as the shining ones for that reason in many other cultures. So they have white skin. Clowns, base, white. They have to put the white skin on first everywhere. That's the base for a clown. So that's the first Nephilim feature we can have that we can go off. Nephilim had elongated skulls. You can find these elongated skulls all over the earth. On every continent, they've been dug up everywhere. And there were giants as well that belonged to these skulls. People like to say it was all a part of cranial deformation by squashing an infant's head at birth to be more cone-shaped. Now, that did go on, and there's evidence for that. But the Nephilim skulls don't show signs of cranial deformation. They have more volume, and they're thicker. So it's not a result of squashing your head into a cone shape. The head is literally just shaped like that. It has more volume than the average human skull. It has wider, bigger eye sockets than the average human skull. Its neck where the spine meets the, the skull is in the middle rather than higher up like a human to support the weight. And we can find examples of them having these elongated heads in Egyptian culture. Akhenaten has a statue with long, thin features, a spiky chin and a huge head, forehead going back. And Nefertiti is depicted as having a huge bulbous head sticking out the back. They were infamous for wearing large, con conical, outward-shaped headdresses for this reason. We know they had long, thin, featured faces, heads, large eyes, elongated skulls, thin and long like a snake, like a serpent. And they had white skin. Now, we know their parents, as described earlier from the Book of Amran, had the visage like a viper. The seraphim looked like vipers. They had the mouth and face like a snake. Now, a viper, if you look at it, has quite a flat face with an incredibly wide from the front smile as a result. When you look at it from the front, it looks like it has a huge grimace. From the side, it's just a big long line because it's mouth and um, and i do believe that feature was passed down to their children once mixed with humans they had this weird looking human reptile skin like thing with this very wide mouth and a jaw that can open incredibly wide a snake can dislocate its jaw to eat its prey and if that's a feature that a snake has and the seraphim were snake-like beings why wouldn't their children also have the ability to open their mouth incredibly wide? These things were terrifying to look at. And a clown always draws a big, wide, bigger than human smile with the face paint. It's always usually with red. And that could be depicting many things. Probably, first of all, the cannibalistic nature of a Nephilim. They ate humans. They drank the blood. 
and they would probably have a smear along the face, along the lips of blood while they were at it, which gives this big red smile. And the clown makeup could be synonymous with that. It could be a metaphorical example of that. So that's likely what that is, but it could literally be that they had, because humans have red lips, they had wide red lips. Serpents don't have lips, but humans do. And this was a hybrid mix of both. So it's likely they had really creepy looking long red lips, you know what I mean? Which would have looked like a clown to us from the front, where it would have looked very strange. Uh, so it could just be that as well, if not literally a sim- symbol for the blood drinking and the cannibalism, which is what they were infamous for. And the red nose could be a similar thing, that their nose was simply just covered in blood all the time because of them eating into bodies and dipping onto the nose. But there are literal depictions of demons with big red noses. The Oni demon in Japan is a very good example, and Tengu as well is a very good example in Japan. It's literally a Nephilim red-skinned demon with a big, long, red, bulbous nose. So it could be a literal feature. It could be a metaphorical feature to have the red nose of blood. I've found evidence for both. So there you go. So we have the white skin, big, wide, red mouth for the reptilian feature. We have the red nose, which could be blood or literal red noses, which was a, just a feature of these things. The makeup on the face, they always have big, black, high brow ridge eyebrows. Now, that's not an eyebrow that they're drawing. That's the eye, the top of the eye they're drawing. So when the clown closes his eyes, it looks like he has big, huge eyes instead. That's what the makeup is trying to actually show there. And often they'll colour it in with blue blush. So when the clown closes his eyes... It looks like he has huge blue alien gray-like eyes, okay? And that's what these things are described as having, glowing blue or golden eyes, like a reptile. They probably had a slit rather than a pupil as well. Clowns are often depicted as having black lines going down the eyes or crosses for that reason. It's a reptilian feature put into the caricature of the clown we call today. So there's the makeup. The hair is usually on the side of the heads, leaving a large-looking forehead in the middle, going all the way back of baldness. That's because they had elongated skulls, as I mentioned earlier, and that's probably what they would have really looked like. Everything is there to accentuate the length of the forehead and obviously to make the eyes seem bigger and brighter than they are and to give that big, wide, serpentine smile. So that's the makeup. They always have a frill of some kind around the neck, and they say it's to mimic the aristocracy of the day and to mock the, the toffs and the rich people and so forth. But a frill around the neck is also a reptilian feature. It's a lizard feature. Specifically, a lizard in Australia is quite infamous for this. But a lot of people are probably more familiar with the frilled lizard from Jurassic Park that spat things in that guy's face. But that frill around the neck, which is obviously represented by this ruffle, is a reptilian feature, once again, just incorporated into the clown costume. There's a film that came out in 2014 called Clown, which is about a man who finds a clown costume. He needs to entertain his daughter for the birthday in an emergency. He he finds this random clown costume in an attic. So he puts it on, performs for his daughter, tries to take the costume off. He can't. It's stuck to his skin. Turns out he's put on the skin of a demon (laughs) in this film. And this demon called a cloin through Scandinavian history, which is false history, all made up for the film but this demonic cloin monster which is a reptilian clown-faced monster now it's possessed the person who's put on the skin that person has to eat five children in order to take the skin off 
Okay. But one feature of that particular wow. clown, the mask he puts on, is a skin-like reptilian frill around the neck, which is obviously what clowns usually wear, the ruffle. But in this film, it's literally a reptilian frill with bones going through it, like you would see in a reptile synonymous with the imagery of the clown in this film. So I think they were hinting at something in that. <laughs> I don't think it was a, a coincidence that they were showing that. And now onto the costume. It's multicolored, fractaled, patterns, polka dots, stripes, lines, contrasting bright colors. That's just like any lizard or snake you find out there. They're incredibly psychedelic looking beings. They have multicolored patterns all over their skin. Serpents are not just one color. And when they are, they still look pretty amazing because the multicolored diamond-shaped patterns of their scales. Okay, so the Harlequin has diamond-shaped patterns of scales all over his costume. The clown has polka dots as well. And these things were the offspring of feathered avian bird-like serpent creatures from space, from heaven. These things were psychedelically colorful in nature. So people who see Nephilim depicted in your typical places anywhere online that has a video about the Nephilim. They always depict this incredibly hench looking human who's just buff as hell. You know what I mean? Holding like a huge spear or something with a loincloth on. It's that's too human. You've gone too human with the depiction. They looked nothing like that. They were incredibly terrifying human snake bird hybrid creatures with bright colors, huge wide teethy grins like Venom from Spider-Man. You know what I mean? These things were terrifying to look at. Men's hearts would stop by simply witnessing them. They were that awful. You know what I mean? They wouldn't, they were colorful and had the most menacing grin you could ever imagine by virtue of the serpentine nature the psychedelic nature of nature itself has a very colorful palette insects are brightly colored and psychedelic fish are incredibly brightly colored and psychedelic octopuses can you see what they can do you know what i mean nature is incredibly colorful and so are snakes and so are the offspring of the seraphim angels so the clown costume with all these psychedelic colors it's just serpent skin that's what they're trying to represent with that they're always depicted with large gloves. So I think that's a hint to a being with incredibly large hands, like a giant. They always wear comical large shoes, unnecessarily comically large feet, because they are representing giants who would have had large feet. They're often depicted on stilts to depict them as literal giants among men walking around. Everything, everything is synonymous with the clown and the Nephilim. It's all intrinsically linked. It's just all the caricatured over-the-top metaphor to represent these demons. Yeah. The disembodied spirits of Nephilim. Everything about a clown you'll find. They wear tiny hats because a normal-sized human hat would look crazy on a giant Nephilim. It would look small. They carry around tiny umbrellas, maybe a reference to the flood, subtly, or it could simply be to show that if they held up a normal-sized umbrella, it would look tiny in their hands. These hints are there everywhere, you know what I mean? And that's basically how a clown is a archetypical symbolic reference to the Nephilim. And it was by design, like I said, the costume change was created by a Freemason. Circuses were invented by Freemasons. Yeah, I was just about to ask about that transition from theater to the circus, because it does feel like 
circuses had other elements involved. There's a sort of freak show aspect, particularly with American circuses, back to my earlier point. But another character that comes to mind in like the circus environment is the like the orchestrator with the top hat. And the top hat is generally worn by a magician. I heard a story recently from Tony Merkel, the host of The Confessionals. He interviewed a gentleman who had a terrifying experience where at Burning Man of all festivals, of course it's going to happen there, there was a man with a top hat who was the DJ and he what appeared to this witness made the entire dance floor disappear into a portal during the height of the energy being raised in this EDM festival and I I wonder given the psychedelic aspects of the Nephilim what are your thoughts on the modern kind of iteration of the circus which is seems to be these music festivals yeah okay so let's go back to the origin of a circus it originally came about from equestrian shows in London where people would do stuff around a ring with horses do tricks stand on horses do backflips off of horses onto another horse, equestrian horse tricks, okay? That's what the original circus was. And it was all around the same time the pantomimes and the harlequinades were at full swing, you know what I mean, this 1800, 1700 period. America was doing its own thing. America was, during this time, the Freemasons were going wild and erecting crazy buildings. This is all before the Depression era. So there was a lot of money going about, and a lot of spectacle was happening. Grand palaces were being built, grand... Solomon Temple copies were being built around this time. Freemasonry built America. Freemasons built America, essentially. And all this money was going around. And they had brought the clown kind of symbolism into what they were called these traveling shows and circuses. Not by, I think, all by design. They picked up the pattern from Britain, the style from Joseph Grimaldi. So this is maybe the early 1800s in the build-up to the 1900s. So again, this 100-year period is where circuses in America became like a popular thing. And obviously during that time, people needed entertainment. It's bread and circus, just like the Roman bread and circus. It's the same thing. And the Freemasons who controlled the country knew this. But they also figured out we can use this as a way to bring our rituals that we perform in our covens in our grand halls to the public masses without them realizing it and perform them on a bigger scale with an audience. And they did this. So we had PT Barnum and Bailey circus, which was a big one at the time. And then you also had the Ringling Bros as well. Okay. Now they became a combined circus in the end. And every last one of them is a Freemason. All of them are Freemasons. And they decided to put on a show during this time, this early time period. I think it was maybe like 1850s or something like that, 1860s. And it was basically called the Queen of Sheba or something like King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And it was this huge circus extravaganza with elephants and camels and exotic animals and clowns and tie-rot walkers and fire and flames and all sorts. But it was retelling the story of King Solomon meeting the Queen of Sheba who brought paganism and demon worship into the that that time period, do you know what I mean? And she, brought, I think she, it was her who brought with her the 72 Goetia of demons, all that kind of information, and corrupted. Anyway, it's all to do with demons, that show. It's all about demonic worship and the 72 demons of the Goetia anyway. And they had now had a symbolic representation of a demon called a clown, which has become highly popular in this time period in Britain from the pantomimes. So the clown just started to become a thing within the circus. 
it just did. It just started to become a thing. And it's described in the book. Someone wrote a book about, I've got it all written down, but he basically explains how they realize they can basically perform these rituals that they would perform in the Grand Lodges, but to the public instead. And it was basically everything about that show, that extravaganza, even the costumes that were made by people who make costumes for Freemasons. Everything was controlled by the Freemasons for that one ritual. And it's literally described as we can now basically perform satanic rituals for people and they won't even know it. It's hidden. And all of our characters can be depicted, all the demons can be depicted by people dressed like clowns and no one's going to realise. <laughs> and that's what they did for a long time. And the ringmaster, the one who orchestrates the circus, the guy with the top hat, that's the grand master of Freemasonry. So in, in Freemason lodges, only the grand master can wear a top hat. Only the highest leader within the lodge is allowed within the lodge to wear the hat. So they brought the grand master of the lodge to the circus and made him the ring leader. Wow. <laughs> Who orchestrates the ritual which the Freemasons would normally take part in in a lodge. He's now at the center stage of the ring. And uh, you can think of the Lord of the Rings, Solomon controlled demons by virtue of a magic ring given to him by God, the ringmaster, controlling all the demons, orchestrating the ritual. It's the grand master of the lodge of Freemasonry. That's why we have a hat man in the middle of the, that's what it comes from. It's this anonymous. It's just the ritual that was normally performed by the hat man within the lodge is now performed on stage in front of people who haven't got a clue what they're looking at. Except for the people who know what they're looking at, who go there to take part in the ritual knowingly. Freemasons know what they're looking at. But the profane masses think they're just being entertained. And it's the more people you can get involved in the ritual, the more powerful the ritual is. Yeah. And it, it's essentially, let's get into why it's a big deal to dress like a clown. So I talk about this in, in my videos. This is what my video is about. It's going through every culture around the world and showing their depiction of a Nephilim in their folk traditions. They all have their own way of dressing like the ancestors, as they call them, but they all have similar clown-like traits. Okay. I believe the clown was invented by taking many of these traits from these cultures all around the world that represented Nephilim and mashing them together into a Western clown. So the Western clown is an amalgamation of all these traits from other cultures all around the world. Freemasons were infamous. They're traveling men. They go all over the earth and they go and find these cultures and these architecture. They collect all the stuff, all the artifacts they can find. They go look for these things because they want to keep their history and their cults solid. They want the knowledge. It's all about hidden knowledge, isn't it, at the end of the day? So they travel around the world and they, I think they find these cultures who worship the demons. They go, I like the way they're venerating the Nephilim. I'm going to take that and we're going to bring it to our rituals here in the West. And I think they took a lot of features from all these cultures around the world and they made a clown out of it. So that's why we see clownish dress in all these folk traditions all over the earth because they all have the same roots. They're all worshiping the exact same thing. Now, when they dress like it, why are they dressing like that? Why do these ancient cultures who have been doing this as an oral tradition forever, why do they do it? What's their intention? They're trying to evoke the spirit. They're dressing like the spirits in order to allow the spirit to possess them. They know that's what they're doing. They're doing it on purpose. They dress like the thing to attract the thing, to welcome it in, to open themselves up 
to it. Uh, Vodou is a great example of this. They openly admit that's what they're doing. They dress like Baron Semedi with a top hat, funnily enough, and it's heavily influenced by Freemasonry, Vodou religion. It's like a Catholic African Catholicism Freemason hybrid. <laughs> that's what Vodou really is. And they dress like this entity called Baron Semedi, and they smoke cigars and drink alcohol because that's what he wants. And when he possesses them, he then smokes and drinks and then they get unpossessed and they don't remember doing any of it (laughs) because it wasn't for them. They were dressing like the thing to look like the thing so the thing can enter them and then partake in pleasures of the flesh, like smoking and drinking, things it liked to do when it had a body. And that's the purpose of it. In, like I said, in Europe, we have this attitude where we dress like the thing to scare away the thing. We dress like demons to, to ward away evil spirits. That's just ignorance. That's just stupidity. Everywhere else in the earth knows why they dress like these things. It's to invite them in. Now, when in the West, when we dress like a clown or apply clownish-like features to our body, dye our hair crazy colours, apply makeup in crazy ways, we don't realize what we're doing is the exact same thing these cultures are doing. We, that we are paying homage to and giving an open invitation to the demons. But we don't know we're doing that. <laughs> and ignorance of the law doesn't make us immune to it, unfortunately. And it's amazing. That's how deceived we have become in kind of European English speaking culture. But everywhere else on the earth knows, they know what they're doing. And it's said in the book of Enoch, and the watchers taught human humanity the art of makeup and deception. And a lot of people look at that interpretation and think, oh, that's that's teaching women how to deceive men. It's all about sex or something like that. It's not what it's about. I think it's a very practical thing. They know, look, the art of makeup and dressing up like something and changing the way you look through colour and shape and form is how you communicate with spirits. It's a practice. It's an art form. It's something that they taught humanity through the art of makeup and the use of makeup. That's what it was truly about. Not just about attracting a mate. That's <laughs> so simple when you think about it. And that's what these tribes do. They dress in crazy, insane, crazy ways. I mean, I must have listed hundreds of them on my channel now. And one of the, one of the most recent ones I can think of is the Corato tradition in Portugal. It's a very old tradition, extremely old, it has Celtic origins and roots. They just do it now as tradition. They don't know why. They just keep going with it. But it's literally multicolored frills, patterns, bells on them, a multicolored mask, hairy body covered in multicolored frills and patterns, red, yellows, greens all over themselves. They have the stick like Helikins does, like I mentioned earlier, the slapstick, the club, which the wild man had. And they literally know this is the devil. This represents the devil. And what they do is they dress like it. And then they even describe it as I lose myself. And I go through the streets and do things I wouldn't ordinarily do during this time period. This then it's all amalgamated with Lent and things. It's been very Christianized throughout the centuries, but they all describe it as losing themselves to the thing that they've put on and being able to do things I wouldn't normally be able to do and be anonymous while doing it. So it's a subtle form of possession. I don't know. You go to the Thayum tradition in, in, in India. And it's a very old tradition, again, very old. And they dress in this incredibly psychedelic, demonic visage. And this one person gets to do it. And this person now has become the god. They have become Theum. Okay. And the people of the village then 
sacrifice things to it, give it things like a chicken, and that person who is now possessed by the demon it rips the head off the chicken and eats it. <laughs> and, and it's considered rude to deny the offering because that person is now the god. <laughs> you know what I mean? The whole village is convinced you are now the god. Simple. We now come to you for advice, and this thing channels the spirit and tells the people what they need to do and gives them the advice that they sacrifice things to this beast for. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. That's just two out of hundreds and hundreds. I, I, on the top of my head right now, you just forget these things. You know what I mean? But go to my channel. You'll find them all there. <laughs> I've listed them. They're all listed down. I'm going to compile it all in the book. It's actually the next five chapters I need to write are all about this. But it's scary. It's scary how obvious it becomes once you see it. Yeah. It really does. But like well, I said, they were the costume to be possessed by the demon. Just because we don't know that's what we're doing in the West doesn't mean we don't have the same result. That's what, yeah. And going back to what I started with telling you about this sort of fright that I witnessed in this peer of mine as a child, there is something ingrained in us to fear the clown, to fear this image that you've gone to great lengths to not only describe, but also show how... This is a demonstrable fact that cultures all around the world have a memory, a cultural and even a physiological memory of these beings. And it doesn't just pertain to Christianity. I did want to ask you about Judaism and Islam and how they describe the Nephilim, because, of course, these are all part of the sort of... I don't know, what's the right term? The They're all offsprings of one another, in a way, right? Judaism to Christianity to Muslim, to Islam, Yeah, right? yeah. In terms of Judaism, I mean, it, it is the Old Testament. It's the right. same thing. Right. They don't really veer away from it. Jo Josephus Flav Flavius is one of the first century Jewish historians. So he was around just after, he was around during Christ, basically. And he did a full antiquated history of the Jews. And he basically tells the entire, the exact same story of Genesis as I've just explained it to you. Right. So they have the same perspective and they know what the Nephilim are and it's the exact same thing within Judaism. There's no difference. In terms of Islam, again, they believe in the Old Testament as well. They have the exact same worldview of the Nephilim. They describe demons as jinn and they describe them as being of a smokeless fire. So they don't really go too much into in the Quran and all the other books within that extra chronicle books. They don't really go much too into the Nephilim history other than what the Bible already says about it. They've just based themselves on top of that as their own post-Christ cult. You know what I mean? But they do describe demons, which is what the Nephilim are, as being beings of smokeless fire. Yeah. And this is the thing about demons. So the Nephilim aren't so much around anymore. Like you said, there are echoes of an ancient past where people did cohabit with them in these traditions. And these people still do these venerations of them. And they don't really know why anymore. Africa's full of it. Africa is awash with this ancestor spirit worship, okay? It's probably the biggest example I can give. And just go, again, look at my channel. I don't want to waste too much time here now talking about it because we've been going for almost two hours. But it's yeah. kind of, you can see it's very clear that the pattern is the same. But yes, smoke, on your answer your question, it's smokeless fire. This is the closest thing we get. But demons... So the Nephilim are in disembodied form now, okay? So they don't look like they used to. 
like serpentine clown right. monster things. Okay. And they're in a disembodied form. And I think they're more like a hive mind thing. Now, when you want to talk about the new age concept of a collective conscious, I don't think humans have that. I think we're all separate in our mind we're created individually. I do think the demons have a collective conscious. I would love for us to believe that we're like that, but we're not, well, I don't think we are. They're described as legion and they talk as one when asked. I think they've melded without having a body to differentiate themselves from one another. They've melded into this weird hyper, I don't know, this amalgamated demonic force, the force we'll call it. But when they do manifest and attempt to manifest, they manifest more jester. This is where we get DMT jesters from. So this is, I have my own experiences with psychedelic drugs. I had a vision, which is one of the things that kind of led me to believe all this and start my research. This was before the 2016 clown sighting. So it was one of the many things that led me to look into this, but I'm a heavy dreamer. And I was in that state just before you fall asleep, that torpor state. And my mind was just flooded suddenly. I was in a psychedelic DMT-like realm, a toroidal-like realm, but I was looking up at this enormous black and white, what I can only describe as like a jester. I can only describe it like that, but it was far more psychedelic and angular and melded into the environment. And it was very, it's just a bizarre mess, but it had this jester like visage to it, this sharp pointy nose, chin, like the jester hat horns going on, but it was, its head was shaped like that. It wasn't wearing a hat. It didn't have clothes on, you know what I mean? It was made of like black and white lines. It had like purple glowing lips and a big wide smile. It was this incredibly psychedelic looking monster I was looking up at for 10 seconds and I'm back. And I was like, what the hell was that? And I thought nothing of it for a long time. And then the 2016 clown sightings happened. And then I'm doing all this research on the Nephilim and then the connection started to roll. I'd heard a lot about machine elves and DMT jesters throughout my psychedelic exploration. I was heavily into Terence McKenna for a long time and Alan Watts and all that Eastern philosophy stuff. I was, I'd listened to all of Joe Rogan's stuff, obviously about the DMT jesters. Who hasn't heard that if you're into that realm, the psychedelic realm. So this idea of, so Nephilim look like clowns. They're now demons. People are seeing jesters when they take DMT. I realize it's all connected and I have this vision myself and I'm off the drugs by this point. I have quit cannabis. I'm born again. I'm struck going into my faith, new person. I'm seeing things with new eyes. And these are the many connections I started to make. And yeah, the DM, DMT jester phenomena has really got a lot of people. They think these things are giving them wisdom. They think these things are something worthy of going to see and communing with. And they think they're harmless. They think they're just archetypes created by the Jungian collective consciousness that are actually real entities or with thoughts or anything. They're just a reflection of my own humanity or something, some nonsense like that, some airy, fairy, ethereal nonsense to describe these entities they're seeing. And these entities would stick their finger up at people and swear at them and laugh at them and mock them and say, hi, you're, you're an idiot. And the person would then go, they're right. I am a fool. Teach me or something like that. We're not understanding that these Nephilim are literally like, look at this idiot who's just come to us. <laughs> we could do anything to him and he wouldn't have a clue. He, he thinks we're gods. <laughs> you know, and it's a joke to them because we're ignorant, because we're foolish, we're stupid. You know what I mean? We don't, we're going into this battlefield unarmed, taking these drugs, thinking it's not real, thinking it's just a mirror of our own consciousness or something. And so they laugh at you. 
that's not they're not laughing at you because they have some special wisdom or they're some kind of sage or bodhisattva of some kind or a buddha of some kind they're not like that they're laughing at you because they think you're an idiot literally they know you're an idiot they know you know nothing and they know you can't defend yourself. You, they know you don't know Jesus. They know all these type of things. You know what I mean? They probably know more about you than you know about yourself. They've been around thousands of years. They can see everything we do. We just can't see them. Yeah. So when you go to this other side, they can pretend to be anything. And you'll give in to astonishment because you didn't think the spiritual world existed. You're in this whoa type of situation and you'll listen to anything they say and they tell all sorts of things they say oh yeah we're aliens from the Pleiades system here to help mankind ascend the fifth dimensional consciousness or they'll say something like oh we're your spirit guides we're here to help you personally become a god they'll say anything it doesn't matter what whatever you believe they will tell you and it's always the same lie you will be as a god we'll make you like gods will make you into something better than what you are currently just trust us just trust us and that's what the dnt jesters are they look like jesters because they originally in their physical form look like clowns they're like a fuzzy type of remnant of what they originally looked like still going on mm. and this realm people go to on dmt is not a special place yeah it's the they're on earth still all they have done is given their filter the ability to see into the matrix of this thing we experience called life with a body <laughs> on an earth underneath all of that in this realm which is still earth there's like the code for everything the connections between things that we don't need to see in order to experience the earth it's the background code running its game it's and that's where they are they're in the machine they're, they are the ghost in the machine essentially right. and they never left the earth they've been here ever since they got killed initially and wiped out by the flood and then after the flood this They've been here for thousands of years and that's what it, that's what they are. That's the spiritual war we all have to deal with on a daily basis. Jesus came and gave us a way to protect ourselves and defeat them with ease. They're a defeated enemy. That's the good news. They don't have a power and authority over anything unless you give it to them. And the whole agenda of this world right now is to make people as ignorant as possible, to give them as much power as possible. Yeah. And yeah, I guess that's it. I guess that's the summary of everything. Paul, I really appreciate you saying that. I maybe shouldn't disclose this, but I was gifted some DMT and I've never done it. Somebody who listened to the podcast gifted it. And then when I mentioned that, other people said, oh, you got to try it. Oh, you got to try it. And that actually made me want to try it less. And as time's gone on with conversations like this, especially in mine, I don't have any thoughts of doing DMT because it, yeah, it just feels like everything I've heard from interviewing people who've experienced DMT, it doesn't sound good. But with that, folks, please go and support Paul with this amazing research at Understanding Conspiracy on YouTube. Paul, where can folks support you other than just YouTube? Do you have a website or a place where the book will be available? You have a book in the process, right? There is a go, there is a go fund me for the book. Just go onto my channel. The links are all there. I think I've raised about two and a half thousand pounds so far. And that's to pay for pre-orders mm -hmm. where I will be, once I've published the book, I will personally send a signed copy to people who have ordered a hundred pounds or more or donated a hundred pounds or more. But any donation on there will get you a special thanks in the book. So right. that's what that's for. And it's basically all that money is literally to pay for buying the books to send to people and obviously copyright costs, artist costs, legal fees, all that kind of stuff, publishing costs in general. 
So the support's been amazing there. If you want to support the book and be a part of it, I you do. can always go to the GoFundMe for that. That's fine. If you want to support me personally on a more monthly basis, I do have a patron where I give extra videos and content on there for five, $5 a month. That's the limit to get access to everything. Beautiful. And that's it for alternative support. I do run a Telegram group, which is quite fun. It's where we just talk about anything and everything. I think there's about 140 people there now. It's quite new and it's just a great place to connect with like-minded people. So if you're interested, you can find that by just typing understanding conspiracy on Telegram. Just join and I'll approve. So that's fun to get an immediate conversation going. If you want to contact me or anyone, I'm on there regularly. But yeah, the YouTube channel, just go there and go to my playlists. I talk about other things, but I do have a Nephilim Look Like Clowns playlist. Right. I'm adding episodes whenever I can. I'm working on one right now to do with Venom from the Spider-Man universe Mm. and how he is a literal representation of an Nephilim entity and a demon, (laughs) just in modern form. It's an ongoing process, that thing. But the book I am currently writing, I'm pretty much almost halfway through it. I've been writing it for about four months. I'm hoping it'll be published by the beginning of next year. But these things go, it could go into the halfway into the next year. I don't know, but it's flowing. It's all coming out because all the knowledge is just up here. And I just need to get it on paper and find the references to back it all up, which I do have. I just need to compile it all, which is what I'm doing. So that's it, guys. Get over to the YouTube and check out what I do. Beautiful. Paul, I really appreciate your time. I know it's late over there, so I won't keep you any longer. I hope to speak with you again sometime, maybe when the book is out. And uh, yeah, I'll be on the GoFundMe because I want to see this book on my shelf. Listeners, please support Paul. And until next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was our conversation with Paul Stobbs. Really happy to have him on the show, and I'm pumped at how fast it all came together from uh, when I first heard him on Steven Snyder's podcast, which is titled The Farm, Mach 2, uh, till now, the day of interviewing Paul Stobbs. And I hopefully am going to do this more often where we uh, record the intro and the outro during the same day. It's flows a lot better and it feels better feels like i have more to say about the actual topic but so much left on the table with the subject like this obviously paul has a book in the works so go support the gofundme and you get uh, a special mention in the book that's cool hopefully you'll see my name in there and uh yeah I'm psyched about this topic. There's a lot more we can get into with Paul, so hopefully we'll have him back on. But go and check out his YouTube channel in the meantime and see all that he is connecting on this uh, matrix board of connections, all leading back to one very dark, insidious truth uh, that you heard us talk about. Uh, Maybe these demons are the fallen angels' offspring still haunting and tormenting us with their limited power today um you know for anybody who's a fan of psychedelics i know maybe it sounds like i bully the idea of uh, being a psychonaut 
I don't. I, you know, I enjoy cannabis as much as Jason Horsley made me think twice, and as much as this conversation uh, reinvigorated my thoughts on DMT. Uh, I am not a hater. I'm not close-minded. I have used psychedelics in the past, and I've used them with success. I haven't, uh, you know, I haven't had any detrimental experiences on them. So I'm never going to poo-poo psychedelics on this podcast. But as I mature and evolve, um, I'm finding less and less interest in topics like DMT, unless it's from this perspective of, uh, well, what's really going on? Because it seems like what we're being told about DMT from the mainstream outlets who are, you know, paid for by these big labs that are actually, you know, creating these weird chemicals. Not that DMT was created by man, but it was synthesized. And I, I wonder, you know, what are the consequences of a more of a world that's more open to psychedelics? You know, maybe it's as good as the hippies have been saying it would be. Maybe not. Maybe it's a psyop. Psychedelics, psyop. Maybe. Maybe. So, anyways, still going to be open-minded to conversations with folks who are experts in those realms. So, you know, look forward to other conversations about this kind of stuff. I'm, you know, just because I've entertained a Christian contrarian doesn't mean that the show that you love is going to become all Christian contrarian. We got to have an open-minded take even if you know my perspective is one way i'm still going to want to interview people from all different perspectives and walks of life so don't be disappointed and support the show whether you like the episode or not if you find value in today's episode or the podcast in general please consider signing up on the patreon the rockfin the Substack, or send us a one-time donation every dollar counts every dollar helps and if you can't, I understand if you can't, you can always write us a five-star rating and review. So consider leaving us a five-star rating and review if you listen on Apple or Podcast Attic or really any app that allows you to do that. We also have a YouTube channel. I'd like everybody to go and subscribe to that. We can grow the numbers there and maybe I'll dedicate more time to live streaming and putting videos on YouTube. For now, all of our video content is on Rockfin and Patreon. But I always get messages from people who seem like they aren't aware that podcasts exist. I don't know how you could be in that position in 2023, but there's a large section of YouTube um, users who think that podcasts are just on YouTube, and that's crazy. Obviously, we all know Joe Rogan's on Spotify exclusively, but podcasts are everywhere, folks. You can listen to them anywhere. You don't have to listen on YouTube or even Patreon. You know, if you don't like Patreon, I agree. I don't like it either. I support over 10 different podcasts with Patreon, and I barely ever use Patreon. I'm always pretty much using the app that I listen to podcasts in and the RSS feed just clicks into there, and I never have to use Patreon. I basically just go on at once, get the RSS feed, and then move on to the app of my choice. But, uh, yeah, enough about that. There's so many ways to support the show, and another way we support this 
show and shows like mine is through partnerships with great sponsors, great products like the Hit Kit. And then we had some really kind folks sending one-time donations this week. Uh, Keep that coming. I'm trying to accomplish some goals over here and do more in-person podcasts. And the only way I can do that is if I save up my money and get a nice mobile microphone, like a microphone I can use on a camera. And yeah, then maybe I'll hit New York City, find some people to interview. I think that would be a great change of pace, and maybe we'll put it on the um, paywall, so only the supporters. But uh, I got to give a shout out to Mark Goodman, who gave me $10 yesterday. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. From one Mark to another. All right. So yeah, keep those one-time donations coming at Mystic Mark on Venmo, at Mystic Mark on PayPal, or you can hit the link in the description for my Bitcoin address, uh, Ko-Fi, buy me a coffee, whatever you prefer, Cash App as well. Uh, so yeah, thanks folks, and thank you for tuning in to this episode with Paul Stobbs. Go and check him out at Understanding Conspiracy on YouTube, and be sure to Send him a couple bucks for the GoFundMe. I want to see this book out. This is a great topic, and no one else is covering it besides Paul. So please do support the man. Until next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now.